continue to do so. The spectrum of fatherhood runs from the passionate to the pathetic. They range from the loving to those who are cold-hearted and cruel. Every, every man must choose what kind of a father that he will be. And one of the choices is going to be, am I going to be like my dad, or do I need to choose to be like someone else? Will he be a selfish person, or will be he he'll be selfless? Does he plan on giving his all to his family, or keeping it all for himself? I want to mention that in the Bible, we don't have a lot of good examples of good dads. Uh, David was not such a good father. Solomon was probably worse than that. Neither Eli the prophet nor Samuel, God's prophet, would be a good model for you to be a father and model yourself after. And really, finding an account of a good father in the Bible is somewhat difficult to do, but it's not impossible. Finding a story of a godly father about uh, a father who is uh, practically uh, doing what God wants him to do, uh, that, that's practically non-existent in the text. Except for when we consider, uh, for a brief time, this man named Job. Job is somebody we can draw some things out from and model in our lives as fathers. Job is one of those who would be a man that we could imitate in certain areas. The word father occurs in the Bible 1,083 times. It's a big deal. It's a big subject. It is a common word in the Bible. The book of Proverbs was written by not such a very good dad who nevertheless does give us advice that is inspired by the Spirit of God, and therefore it is valuable, and we need to listen to what he has to say there. As far as following Solomon's example, probably not. It'd be hard to find a place where we could do that in terms of him being a father. There is more information on how to be a good father in the Bible than examples of good fathers in the Bible. It must be a difficult position in life, apparently, because every father is a sinner. Every dad has his faults. Today we will look at Job as fathers and incorporate that into our fatherhood, uh, the things that he is going to teach us, and we can glean from that. And as we learn, so should we do. Now I'm going to divide up this first chapter. We're just looking at chapter 1, and I want to take verses 1 to 5 as we begin. In 1 to 5, what I want us to extract from that is this, that a good father is one who chooses to be a godly man. Every man who has children has a choice. What kind of a father will I be, and am I going to choose to be a godly father, or am I going to choose to be something a little bit less than that? Here's what Job 1, 1 to 5 says. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were also 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. That particular text means he is the wealthiest guy that is in the whole area. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according excuse me, to the number of, of, the, of them all, of each kid. 
For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. I said a good father is one who chooses to be a godly man. Now before we get deep into that, I would like to start with some information about the book of Job. And I want you to know this stuff, so uh, hang in there with me as we go through that. Just to be clear, uh, this statement that I've made about being a godly man is a statement for a man's life in every single area. There is no area in life where a man should not choose to be godly. Whatever our station is in life, God wants us to be controlled by being like him in godliness. He wants us to exhibit to all that we prioritize him in our life as being number one, and no one comes before him. Well, we are introduced to a man from the land of Uz. Uh, not, not, no one is really quite sure where that actually existed in the Old Testament landscape. Of interest is the Hebrew word for this uh, letter Uz, U-Z. Um, it is a Hebrew word that is actually pronounced Oats, and uh, we don't ever say that from the land of oats because you would think as farmers, you know, that somebody's growing oats out there, but that's not the case. Instead, it is the name of a place, but it's also used for human names in the Old Testament world. This word means to consider something, to devise a plan, or to think with a purpose or result of deciding on a course of action. Ooze can be understood as a place of counsel. That has led some scholars to believe that it wasn't even a real place, but they said this is the place where a council was held and counseling was done and people have learned from that council. I happen to think it was a real place. God uses those names and they just happen to fit into his plan because he planned it that way, but it's a place of counsel. Now the book covers a, a whole different issue than what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about fatherhood. But I want you to also understand that this is a place in God's word, like every place in God's word, you can come for counsel about what it means to be a good father, a good mother, a good son, a good daughter. It's all over the Bible. Well, this is what will take place in this book. But I want to remind you, if you're reading through the book and studying it, you have to be careful. You have to be careful because much of the advice that is given in this book is absolutely wrong and it's ungodly. And it's not what God taught, and it all comes from Job's friends. Job's friends believe in retribution theology. Job's friends believe that if you live a good life, then, then God is going to only let good things come to you, which is heresy. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that hard times will come on very good people. And it's not just reserved for those who are wicked. The Bible teaches that there's going to be suffering and hardship for the Christian person and for Christian moms and dads. And the friends come along and say, Job, you've sinned and God is punishing you. And we find out throughout the book that they're absolutely wrong. There is no retribution theology with God. There is forgiveness and then there is the will of God in terms of how things are going to turn out. So when Eliphaz is, something, is saying something, you better take it with a grain of salt and all of his other friends, because they're not teaching the truth. That's the point of the book. Job is teaching the book. You can be confident when Job is expressing things, and I want you to know that. The meaning of Job's name is also something that scholars don't agree on, but one of the popular meanings is this, he who turns to God. Now, that certainly fits the man. We also don't have a firm date that the book was written. Considering all factors, Job seems to have lived 
around the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, which means it's one of the earliest books of the Bible, if not the earliest. He had seven sons, which is a sign of God's blessing on your life. And he also had the icing on the cake, uh, three daughters on top of that. Another blessing, a greater blessing. He is, at the beginning of the book, the wealthiest man of all the men in the East. Now we are talking about great blessing here. Not that the Bible is somehow teaching that good dads are always wealthy dads. That wouldn't be true. Some of the best dads that ever lived were dads who had very little. So we want to be careful about what we apply. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, that you have to be wealthy. In fact, it doesn't. So let's keep that in mind. He has a lot of stuff because he's wealthy. He has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. He has 500 yoke of oxen, which means he has no less than 1,000 head of cattle, 500 female donkeys. He has many servants. Now listen, many servants is going to mean that many of them were married and many of them had kids, and this guy's, this guy's holdings are massive. Can you imagine the number of people that are depending on Job for their livelihood and to put food in their children's mouths? It doesn't give us a number, but it had to be great. Then he has his own 10 kids. They're probably married. Maybe they have kids. It doesn't tell us. But anyway, these kids are growing up in a very lavish situation, a carefree lifestyle. And thanks to the wealth of their father, they most likely also had servants and families. They like to have feasts and celebrate birthdays. We don't really know the timetable of these feasts. They either feasted every day throughout the year or they celebrated each one's birthday for seven weeks throughout the year or they celebrated once per year for one week and taking turns. Uh, when you really dig into that, it's really hard to tell exactly what they were doing, but they loved to party on birthdays. We know that. Each son took his turn hosting the feast in his own household and he did it for the others and they would invite the girls to come. The point is, the consistency of Job taking the form of priestly intercession for his family. That's what we're supposed to focus on. He was concerned about the relationship between his children and the God that he served, which is our God. In verse 5, when the feast cycle was completed, however that happened, Job set his children apart through worship, through sacrifice, and purified them so that they could worship God. And that's what it says. When the days of feasting were over and complete, that's what happened. And Job did this religiously. Acting as a religious priest in the time before the law was written, he offered a whole burnt offering for each one of his children uh, when they worshipped. Why did Job do this? Well, he did it just in case it says that one of them had cursed God in his or her heart or committed some evil. Job never backed off on this practice. The father of the family, what we can learn from that, the father of the family is responsible for the spiritual care and training of his children. I run into very few couples that will tell me that, yes, they read the Bible every day and they read it together as a couple. Uh, some of them read it every day, but they don't read it as a couple. How about a couple that prays? Yes, I pray. Do you pray with your husband or wife? No, that's not happening either. Those things should happen. And really, it's dad's issue because dad is to be the spiritual leader of the home. That's one of the responsibilities that God gave fathers. A father of a family is responsible for the training of the children in his home. If you're counting on the church to do that, you're in trouble. 
we have, for, for the time in the week of a child that they give, we have a very little slice of time at church to train your children. We are trying to just reinforce what you're doing at home. We're trying to reinforce your training. You have way more time with them. And so uh, next month, Travis tells me, on the 2nd and 4th of July, we're going to start Children's Church. But your job isn't done when you see to it that your kids go to Children's Church. It's bigger than that. A good father is under no illusion that his kids are perfect and that they need no repentance. He takes leadership in gathering the family for worship and seeing to it that that takes place. Dad may not be a theologian, it doesn't matter, but if he opens the Word of God with his kids and reads it to them, plants it in their heart, gives them a simple explanation of what may be going on there, or a deep one, some can do that. The issue is a little kid who grows up and said, I had a dad that prayed, I had a dad that read the Word, I had a dad that cared about me spiritually. Can I put it this way? We make our kids go to school, we make our kids do sports, but when it comes to church, many American parents are saying, you make up your own mind, kids, which is the same as saying, I have nothing to offer you spiritually. And that's a shame. And we ought to be ashamed of that. He does not ever give up on leading the family in worship or caring about the spiritual condition of the hearts of his children. Can he change the hearts of his children? No. That's God's business, not ours. But we do our part as best we can. Now, I want to go back just a second before we go on to verse 1. Going back, I want you to take a look at the kind of man who is leading his family in worship. God's opinion of Job is that he is blameless, that he is upright, meaning straight, a straight walker, fears God, and chooses to turn away from evil. Now, there is nothing better that a dad can do for his children than to be this kind of a man. Now, was Job sinless? No. Did he make mistakes? Of course he did. But in God's estimation, with God's forgiveness in his life, that was his opinion of this man. How would you like it if God was having a debate with Satan about you and he said, this man or this woman is upright, fears God, chooses to turn away from evil and blameless in all their ways. Blameless is somebody who is complete and sound in their life. Upright is straight and on the level way, pleasing to God. God-fearing is simply being fearful of God and in awe of God. And turning away from evil means to turn from a course of life to a different one by choice. That was Job. And brothers, I want it to be us as well. These all add up to a high standard, but it is what we are seeking to be despite our personal sin and imperfections. Remember this, Job was just a man, but he was unlike other men because he loved God. In verses 6 to 12, we learn fathers face spiritual opposition when trying to live their lives, we'll say for Jesus, although Job wouldn't have known his name, but when they're trying to live their lives for Jesus, verses 6 to 12. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, and we're talking about angels there, came to present themselves before, the, before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. And Yahweh said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered to Yahweh and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Then Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. 
Now, that's the second time God has given his opinion about this man. He's about to have friends that come in and say, you're none of those things or you wouldn't have lost everything. God punishes you because of your sin. God twice has said, this is the heart of this man. So we want to accept it. This is true about Job. Then Satan answered Yahweh, huh, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his household and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Then Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand and your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of Yahweh. Notice how Satan doesn't waste any time. When he has permission to mess with somebody's life, he gets right to it. He likes doing that. Fathers need to understand they face spiritual opposition in this world to try to raise good kids and be a good husband. Well, we have parties going on at the kids' house quite often, apparently. The kids might be a little bit lazy. Their dad is rich, somewhat spoiled, perhaps, prone to sin like everybody else. Dad, we remember the only one who can truly change your child's heart is God in heaven. Really need to understand that. Only one that can change your child's heart is God in heaven. That is not your job. You're to help God in every way that you can. You're to do the right things as best you can, but it's not your job to change their hearts. Only God can do that. Meanwhile, some, something is going on in heaven that will cause unbearable pain in Job's godly life. Angels, good and evil, so angels elect and demonic, are gathering before the throne of God in heaven. Don't be shocked at that. That happens all the time. The counsel of God, Psalm chapter 82, says that uh, some of those demonic angels are members of the counsel of God that make decisions and carry out what God wants done. They're all meeting in heaven. This could be a council meeting, but there seems to be more angels there than just the normal council. But there's a group of angels. It's time for them to present themselves before Yahweh for accountability. Among them is one who roams the earth, and his title is really the adversary. And we call him here the Satan in the Hebrew text. He is a slanderer and an accuser and one who gives physical opposition to children who are of the flesh. Ancient kings often had people who would disguise themselves and they'd go out in the kingdom of the king and they would just listen and gather information about what are people saying about the king? Is it good or is it bad? What kind of people are in the kingdom? And then they would go back to the king unbeknownst to other people and report on what was going on in the kingdom, what somebody said. It seems that Satan is doing something like that. And so God is asking for his report. And he mentions, well, did you notice Job? And he says, yeah, I know, I, know all about, I know all about that guy. So Yahweh wants to know, has he considered the stature and the life of Job? In verse 8, Yahweh gives his assessment of that man. And that's what we've already been told about him. Satan says a lot of things about man's response to God. None of it is good. The adversary, or Satan, says... <clears throat> excuse me, that Job has reason to follow God. And his reason is because God pays him off. God is purchasing the commitment of Job. 
The Satan implies that if God didn't bless people, they would not follow him. In other words, no person would worship God if God didn't pay them to do it. And the sad truth is there are some people that come to churches and try to live in a certain way, thinking that if I can just achieve that goal, then God is going to give me what I want. He's going to give me a bigger farm or a bigger business or greater pay if I could just, if I could just make him happy. And that's not what the Bible teaches. God shouldn't have to pay you for your allegiance. It should be about love. His love for you first and then our love because he first loved us. So he states that if God withholds a paycheck, blessing from Job, Job would curse God and he would not remain loyal. His thesis is that God must purchase loyalty from those who follow him. God gives the Satan permission to disrupt and destroy all that Job has, and they would then discover what Job is made of. What I want to extract from this, and by the way, this book of Job is not about fatherhood. It's about retribution theology and how false it is. That's what it's about. But we're gleaning things from a good man about fatherhood. The good father knows that he is in a spiritual battle, first of all, for his own walk with God, That's primary, because if dad falls apart, the family's going to suffer. So he maintains it despite adverse circumstances like Job did. He doesn't serve God because God pays him. If he fails in his relationship with God because uh, he gave in to the enemy, it won't, won't go well for his family. So he serves God because he loves God. He must prove, he must prove his proper motive in serving God. God, the motive would be, I will serve you, Lord God, even if you don't bless me. Now, everybody in here needs to stop and ask yourself that question. Do I have the attitude that as long as things are going well, I will serve God? But God, if you step out of line one bit, and you cut me off at the knees, and you bring trouble into my life, and things don't go well, then, buddy, I'll be looking for somebody else. You say, well, how absurd. Who would say that? I've had people in my office tell me that. I can't find any help with God, a man told me. I'm going to go try the TMers. Maybe they have the answer. They don't have the answer. You're just looking for somebody to give you what you want. My priority and your priority in life is God first. Satan is never a friend to us, nor your family. And he does not have good intentions towards us. He is a killer. So that's another good reason why dad needs to stay where he needs to be spiritually with God. Let's look at verses 13 to 19 together. Now on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine their oldest brother's house, in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. That means they killed them. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and killed them, uh, the servants, with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, 
your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. Now that had to be the worst news that he's gotten all day, even though the other news was horrible. And he said, I alone have escaped to tell you. Now we'll look at his response in a minute. We also learn here that Satan works behind the scenes to steal, kill, and to destroy. While the kids are fasting, or not fasting, feasting, that's, that's a big difference. <laughs> I don't know if they ever fasted. But while these kids were fasting, or feasting, you won't forget that part, right? Feasting, we're talking chicken legs and everything. They never suspected that life would not go on as usual. A word about kids. Kids can get wrapped up in their world and think it's the real world. They don't know it's not. In verses 14 to 15, out of nowhere and without warning, the Sabaeans come out of the south with ill intent. They slaughter and kill all the servants but one, and they take 1,000 head of cattle and 500 donkeys. In verse 16, before the conversation ended, another servant reported that from the west, the fire of God fell, and we understand it's really from Satan. Satan can control weather. It's probably lightning flashing out and burning things up, and incinerated uh, 7,000 sheep and the servants who attended them. Just think of all the widows and the children who are now fatherless in Job's enterprise. They're stacking up in number. In verse 17, interrupting this report, an escaped servant quickly reports the Chaldeans came from the north, formed in three vans. Vans. <laughs> I'm trying to modernize this. They were in bands, not vans. And they attacked and slew the servants who cared for the camels. They took 3,000 camels. Up to this point, Job uh, has only three herdsmen left of the great number that he had a few hours ago. And then out of the west, a great wind comes, and it takes out the oldest brother's house. It drops him on, on the kids, and none of them survived the crash. The servant escaped to tell him. Job knew that his children belonged, listen, to God first, to him second. Do you know that? It bears repeating. These children you have, they belong to God first. You second. Parents today, I think, not everybody of course, live with lies. They actually believe that they can protect their kids, keep them safe. I used to run a support group for parents that lost children. They know that's a lie. You can't. They think they can control their kids and keep them from pain. They think they can control their hearts. They think they can guarantee their future path or make their kids love God and honor and respect them for the rest of their lives. All children belong to God first. Parents are stewards of these little lives on loan for God. God has outlined what he wants the father to do for the children. But all that other stuff I mentioned, friends, that's up to God. God is the only one who controls hearts. And each child will have to answer to God on his or her own. We're just concerned with doing what God wants us to do. And then finally, verses 20 to 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. 
and he fell to the ground and worshipped. Now the first part of that is all about somebody in mourning. And then he fell down and worshipped. And he said, these verses that you probably all know, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Exactly the opposite of what his friends are going to accuse him of doing in this book. So another thing dads can learn this morning is what Job did. Job responded to adversity by mourning, of course, mourning, M-O-U-R, mourning, worshiping, and blessing the God of heaven. The guy has a heart. He just lost all his children. So he mourned. But in that mourning, he worshiped. In verse 20, the first part, Job responded by tearing his robe and shaving his head. He is in mourning. Job fell to the ground and worshiped. Few of us in that situation could even get off a chair if somebody hit us with that kind of news. We might be able to fall down and worship, but he got up and purposely went and he worshiped. Dads accept the will of God, even when the lives of their children are concerned. Probably your children are the most important thing to you in your life, next to your wife. But these children belong to God before they belong to you. And dads learn to accept the will of God, even where the lives of their children are concerned. Dads don't check out on God when, adver when adversity comes. They get closer. What would it do to your children if they watched you check out on the one that you said, you promised, was our anchor, the cornerstone of our family? Dads demonstrate that their relationship with God is the relationship by which all other relationships are judged and prioritized. Dads know that bad things don't always happen because somebody has sinned. Here, something bad is happening because God wants to prove something to his adversary. And God thinks that's okay. Do you? Dads know bad things don't always happen because somebody sinned. In verse 21, Job's statement of allegiance to God shows that good dads have a solid view of the sovereignty and the ultimate goodness of God in heaven. God gave, God took away. The answer is, the response is, blessed be the name of God. In verse 22, no matter what happens, a good dad never lays blame at the feet of God. A good dad never charges sin to the account of God because God is not sinful and he never does what is wrong. Now, I hope you've picked up some things as we've gone along. This did not touch every area of fatherhood, but I think it touches some key areas of fatherhood that we can all take. So, some application as well. Number one, fathers are spiritual leaders of their families. I don't expect mom to get the Bible and say, Dad, would you please read devotions for us? I don't expect mom to say, hey, kids, let's get together uh, as a family and pray. That's, God, that's God's given job to, to man and to fathers. Fathers are the spiritual leaders of their families. Be a spiritual leader, Dad. Secondly, fathers cannot change the hearts of their children. 
If you believe that you can, stop believing a lie. Now, do everything you and I are supposed to do to try to get them to that point, but it's up to God if they, if they make him Savior and, and the Lord of their life. Only God can do that. Be committed to it. Save you a lot of heartache. Thirdly, fathers never stop being concerned about the spiritual lives of their children. It's okay, Dad, if they're adults and they've grown up and they have kids. It's okay for you to check in spiritually. It means a lot to them. And finally, godly fathers choose to be complete, to walk a level path, to fear God, and to choose against evil. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, the object of what I am saying this morning is not to bring guilt in the hearts of fathers who haven't been doing or they know they haven't been doing what you want them to do. It is rather to encourage and inspire that the best way to go is your way. The best way to move forward with our families, no matter where we're at with that right now, is with you. And it all needs to start with us making the decision to be the kind of godly person that you've called us to be. And I just pray that we would be encouraged to do that, that we would see the benefits of it, that you wouldn't have to pay us to do the right things, that you wouldn't have to bribe us with blessing to love you. And I ask it in your precious and holy name. Amen. stand please we're going to close out by singing greater grace than our sin and number 201 
Would you bow for the benediction? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.